Hey guys, before we get into the episode, you all know I'm a huge fan of fashion and I have been ever since I was a little girl. And my first job, by the way, was actually at Macy's. And my love for fashion began when I started there because I worked in the fragrance department, but of course my eye was always on the clothes and the makeup and everything related to style. But here's the thing, my relationship with Macy's didn't end once my days of asking people walking by if they wanted a sample of the latest scents came to an end. Nearly 20 years later, I still find myself choosing Macy's time and time again for literally everything. It's become a really beautiful full circle moment that they've been such amazing supporters of our show for so long. And when it comes to shopping, they have everything you need, whether I need a last minute outfit or Kevin needs a last minute outfit for our friend's wedding. We always head to Macy's. They've got us covered. So if you're in need of some retail therapy, perhaps, or looking to spruce up your home or your lifestyle, check out Macy's friends. I've curated a list of some of my favorite items that have helped me upgrade so many parts of my life, really my fashion the most, but of course home and baby and so much more. So check the link in the description and happy shopping Hill Squad. Hello, Heel Squad. For this Throwback Thursday, we're throwing it back to the incredible Dr. Amy Cuddy, who is a social psychologist, best-selling author, award-winning lecturer, and expert on the behavioral science of power, presence, and prejudice. She's helping us get confident, own our presence, trust ourselves, face our feelings. We're even talking imposter syndrome. This is one of my all-time favorite episodes. Dr. Cuddy is so incredible. I hope you all love it. And we will see you tomorrow and the next week. Have a good one, Heal Squad. Enjoy. I'm on a journey to get better in all areas of life, from wellness and mental health to career and relationships and so much more. I know getting better isn't easy, but it's a whole lot easier when you can do it together. Welcome to Better Together with me, Maria Menunos. Welcome back to Better Together. (laughs) Um, We have a quote of the day for you. Focus less on the impression you're making on others and more on the impression you're making on yourself. Damn. I like that. Of course, that is from our guest today, Dr. Amy Cuddy, who wrote the book, Presence, Bringing Your Boldest Self to Your Biggest Challenges. And I'm obsessed with her book. You know, you know you're obsessed when you're every other page, you're flipping the corner and then you're drawing notes and you're like, me, me, (laughs) oh my God. So that's exactly how I felt. Yeah. And I feel like um, the last time I had kind of moments like this was, gosh, we had that, that woman on the show and she wrote about confidence and there were moments in that book where I was like, wow, I thought I was super confident, but maybe there are some holes in here. And when you read Amy's book, I kind of had similar moments again. And I was wondering, because she talks about the fragile high self-esteem. And I was like, well, that kind of sounds like me sometimes. And I'm wondering, and I'm going to ask her, if you can go from having a self high self-esteem to eventually people abusing you enough for it to become fragile. And maybe that's where oh. I've, I've kind of fallen into because there are some things that go on where I'm like, that's not me why am I acting like that why am I that you know Kevin always used to say you're Teflon when it comes to your confidence and like there are some little little things in there so I have to ask the expert yeah and she sure she also has an incredible story because she had a massive brain injury um and you know lost 30 IQ points 
she was in a huge car crash and, um, you know, went from this Ivy League student to having to relearn everything, right? Everything. Uh, she And she was one of those people that identified by her intelligence and her competence, which I totally get that. That was something I fostered as a kid. So if to lose that, the identity crisis that must have been placed on her is insane. But she's so tenacious for what mm-hmm. she did, which makes her so cool. And what's really cool is that we found her at the same time, I but know. different ways. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember how I found. Oh, I found her in a meeting. <laughs> so funny. So I was in a meeting at William Morris, my agency, and I was talking to uh, my agent about my documentary. And she's like, you need to know Amy. Because they're working together on a book about something that I'm going to be incorporating into my doc. And I was like, oh, my God, we need to know each other. Yes. And I sent her to you. I'm like, we need to have her on the show. All right. So let's get to our interview. So, of course, as I said, Dr. Amy Cuddy is a social psychologist, best-selling author, award-winning Harvard lecturer, and expert on the behavioral science of power. Uh, In 2012, she gave a TED Talk called Your Body Language Shapes Who You Are, and she detailed the effects of power posing, which we'll talk about based on her research of herself and other scientists working in the field. The talk went viral, and it became one of TED's most watched ever, um, with more than 54 million views. So without further ado, here's our interview with Dr. Amy Cuddy. Thank you again for for taking the time to chat with us. I love your book, Presence. It's Thank you. very marked up and all the pages are, you know, yeah. the corners are tucked. Um, we started with your quote, our quote of the day. We started with you, um, which I loved, which is focus less on the impression you're making on others okay. and more on the impression you're making on yourself. Yeah. Which I grew up with the complete opposite. It was very ingrained in me that what everyone else thought of me is what mattered. Right. I mean, tell so me, many of us grew up that way. Tell me what that does to somebody <laughs> from your well, perspective in your research. I mean, there, there, are, there are a couple things. One, one is that when you are focusing on what you think they think of you, I mean, first, you're usually wrong about it, but also it takes you away from the present completely. You cannot be present with people when you're worrying about what is happening in their minds with regard to you. Right. So there's no way that you can actually hear what they're saying or see them as a person or be in that moment because you're not you're not listening to them. You're only listening for cues that signal back to you what they think of you. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so first of all, it takes you away from the moment completely. Second, people pick up on it, even if they're not fully conscious of it in studies of job interviews and, you know, venture capital pitches, what you find is that people who are using um, classic impression management techniques, like, you know, a firm handshake and lots of lots of eye contact, you know, these, these tactics that people believe make them come across better, they actually backfire and they do much worse in those interviews or in those pitches, because those impression management or IM tactics that they they're using make them seem disingenuous. People don't like them. They don't trust them. They come across as less trustworthy and as less authentic. So it doesn't, it takes you away from the present. So you're not performing well because you're not there fully, but you're also not performing well because you come across as phony. 
so the, the idea of managing the impression you make on yourself is so critical to all this talk about authenticity. I mean, we talk, we throw around this term authentic self all the time now, but no one is defining it. You know, no one is really talking about what it means. And it really is about understanding yourself and, you know, caring about um, how you see yourself, right? That's what comes across to others, right? If you don't believe your story, nobody believes your story. If you don't buy what you're selling, nobody buys what you're selling. So you need to buy it. Don't worry about selling it to them. If you wouldn't buy it yourself, you shouldn't be selling it. Yeah. Well, oh man, there's so much in there. You know, it's it's interesting because I always find, whether it's with this show or just in life, everything I need comes to me in the exact moment I need it, right? Oh, uh, yeah. So you and this book came in right at the right time. I was just telling Stephanie when I got back from over a month of being on the East Coast with my family that I had a really big breakthrough, so my husband always calls me shackadoodle. He's like, you just go in and you just, you know, you slam dunk. You're not thinking. You just, you just, you know, go in and, you know, you'll usually nail it, but you're not thinking. You're not like focused about it. We're like, you know, um, a Larry Bird was so focused and so intense and whatever. <clears throat> and I realized that my early kind of um, breeding in terms of being in this business, my agents from a young age, when I was 13 and I was starting to model, the agency would send me out for jobs where I should have been older. And they would say, well, you got to play 21. Just make them love oh, you. Wow. And so I always was having to do that. And then as I started succeeding in the business in Hollywood, it was always okay, so I have a meeting with these executives. What's the goal here? And they would be like, just go in, have them fall in love with you. We'll do the rest. So that's how I've approached all of these meetings for so long. And I realized it in some in this break in Connecticut that I had. Oh my gosh, I'm still using these tactics at 41 when I go into a meeting. And I'm wondering why I'm not getting some of the things that I want in this new kind of life that I'm having, that it's not about that. And then... Then I started getting into some of these things where you were talking about venture capitalists and investments and how to get these people to want to invest in your company. And this is literally timed to the moment where I am starting to go out and seek investment for my company. So this yeah. couldn't be a better time for all of this. And so oh. I always say God loves me because it always comes at the right time. And I think it's going to benefit so many women who are listening because I know I'm not the only one that was taught that, you know, you're what everybody thinks of you matters. And it definitely has hurt me so much in my life because you're never guided by yourself. You're guided by what everyone else thinks of you, wants from you. And then they also take advantage of that. So when they yeah. see it, tell us a little bit about that. Cause my therapist had told me at one point, she goes, Maria, cause I had, you know, producers in the industry that were just being so cruel. She goes, they're literally laughing at you behind the scenes because they see you like the puppy dog that's like, what else can I do to please you? What else can I make you happy with? What else can I do? I'm not enough. Tell yeah. me how I can be enough. And it's so brutal. Oh, yeah, I don't. 
Hey, Hill Squad and Better Together fam. It's been a tough year, but we hear from so many of you just how much our content is helping you heal and get better, and it makes us feel so good. Our team works so hard to deliver this life-changing content, and a lot of you guys ask, how can I have a bigger role in our Heal Squad community, or how can I do my part to help Better Together continue to uplift even more people? First of all, thank you for that sentiment, and we're so grateful for this community. If you could help us by giving us a five-star rating and a comment on Apple Podcasts. That's amazing. Second, you could join the Better Together with Maria Menounos Instagram page. Third, you could share the show with a friend in need. And finally, for as little as $10 a month, please join our Patreon to get monthly live heal events with world-class healers, ad-free episodes of our show, and even weekly bonus episodes exclusive to Patreon. Getting better isn't easy, but it is a whole lot better when we can do it together. We love and appreciate and are so grateful for all of you. Oh, it's awful. And I don't know if it's if they're doing that consciously or if they're responding, you know, again to that sort of sense that you don't fully know. Or And I'm not saying that this is true of, of you course. now, but, but in these examples that maybe, you know, you didn't fully buy your own story. Right. You didn't or your value. Believe, right. So you were kind of teetering around in the wind, right? You were like untethered. And so you could be easily pushed over if somebody just blew, you know, they knock, they could knock you over. Mm-hmm. So I don't even know that people are doing it intentionally, but when they notice that kind of, it's a sort of instability. And I don't mean that it's a mood instability, but it's a, it's a lack of groundedness, mm-hmm. right? Your feet are not you're not, you're not firmly planted on the ground. And so people can knock you over very easily. And, you know, people who are maybe a little bit pathological are going to be more inclined to do that because maybe they find it fun, Mm -hmm. which is, um, you know, sadistic, uh, (laughs) exactly, which is sadistic. Um, but, but I think really more the, the average person just they can't take you as seriously, right? So when it really comes to making the decision about who to invest in, whether it's financial investment or emotional investment or time investment, they they invest in the person who believes their story. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. You see this in um, it. There is a television show that you may have watched about uh, people who make pitches to a a group of uh, of, of investors. Mm-hmm. Um, Yes. Shark Tank. One of my favorites. Shark Tank. So my son, who's now 17, and I have loved watching this for years. It's kind of like a guilty pleasure. He, as the child of a psychologist who studies body language, is pretty good at body language. And we love to predict who's going to do well. And, And it maps really well onto what the research shows, which is the people who do well are not necessarily the slickest. In fact, slick does not come across well because that is when you have like, and no offense to Harvard Business School where I teach, but you know, the HBS students who are super slick and super polished, they come across as managing the impression too powerfully, Mm -hmm. you know, as sort of trying to control the impression they're making as opposed to actually responding in the moment. The people who do well on the show are the ones who just so clearly believe in what they're selling. You know, they love it. They, They don't just feel passionate about it. There's this really deep moving conviction and they sometimes are awkward. You know, they're not the slickest people always, but they're the ones who deeply believe in what they're doing. And that is compelling. 
That is, we convince by our presence. You know, that's Walt Whitman said that many, many, many years ago. But it's it's so true when we are present and presence is partly about buying what you're selling, mm-hmm. you know, believing your story. Other people can buy it, too. You're giving them the freedom to actually hear what you're saying, to respond to you, not to respond to all of these tactics that you're using to make them like you. You know, the other thing about not being, you know, sure of yourself, you know, and worrying more about the impression you're making on others is that, um, you know, it, it is sort of it is sort of distracting. Right. People don't know if they can totally trust you if you don't trust yourself. Mm hmm. Yeah, I marked um, on here on page five, you talk about presence stems from believing and trusting yourself, your real honest feelings, values and abilities. That's important because if you don't trust yourself, how can others trust you? Just like you said. But then I also had marked there's another page in here where you went into it a little deeper and you said it's being it's the state of being attuned to and able to comfortably express our true thoughts, feelings, values and potential. That's it. And I think that's really interesting is being able to express your true feelings. Um, I'm definitely getting there, which is interesting because I find myself in meetings now being way honest where normally I would hold my opinion to myself, tell my agent behind the scenes and let him deal with it. Now I'll just bluntly say, I'm like, I'm so sorry, this is not for me. I can't do this. (laughs) Well, and I think that there's, there's this sort of like, we play around with that for a while. Like it's, it's hard to get to the point where we figure out how to accurately express our true feelings in a way that is comfortable for us. And also that is effective and works for other people. Right. So it can't be your totally unfiltered self either. Mm -hmm. But part of the problem I find is not that people um, can't express their feelings is that they actually don't know their feelings. You know, so the, it's taking a step back even from where you, from what you're talking about. People don't know who they are. So when, when people talk about the authentic self, I think a lot of people shut down because they're like, I don't even know who that is for me. And there's so much research on sort of how to kind of figure this out and how powerful an exercise it is just to figure out who your authentic self is. And, and it's, it's really simple. Um, write about, you know, rank the, the, the three things that you most care about that you most value. Now this, there's no right or wrong answer and it's going to vary dramatically across people. Some people might say, I care about art. Other people will say, I care about family or I care about doing meaningful work, right? It can, it can vary dramatically. Rank those things, take the top one, write about a time when you were really able to express that value. You know, when you really were living that value, that thing that you care about and write about how it felt. And we call that self-affirmation. And hundreds of studies have shown that when people self-affirm, before a challenging situation, they perform much better in that situation. And here's what's really interesting about this. Say you're self-affirming and, and your value is family or helping others. And you, that's what you write about. And then you go in and your challenge is to do well on a difficult math test. Now, a math test has nothing to do with helping others. Mm-hmm. So these things should not be related. Yet when people self-affirm, They perform better on challenging tasks, even if those tasks are completely unrelated to the thing that they value. 
Does that make sense? Yeah. And why is that? Is it because they're so comfortable in the other areas that they aren't carrying baggage into these? Yes, because they know who they are. They've now anchored themselves in themselves, right? So they now know who they are and they know that no matter how they, you know, how well or poorly they do on that math test, no one can take away who they are. There's still going to be that person who cares about family or helping others or whatever that value is. That's unshakable. No one can take away from you who you truly are. Mm -hmm. right? So that's why when we feel, when we shore up our authentic selves, we are free. We're freeing up bandwidth, cognitive bandwidth, emotional bandwidth to, you know, to, to actually think about other things because we know who we are and we're going to be that person no matter what happens in this challenge. Ooh, I love that. We free up our emotional and cognitive bandwidth. I just feel like so many of us run around with that on red. Oh, absolutely. Wow. You know, you talk about um, the fragile high self-esteem. Is it possible to have had a good self-esteem that has been bullied down to a fragile high self-esteem? And what does bullying have to do with all of this? Man, that's a big topic. So, you know, my next book is on bullying mm -hmm. and, and it's on adult bullying in particular, because I think that the elephant in the room is adult bullying. We're all talking about our kids, but really the problem is with us, right? Yep. They're doing what they see us doing. If you need um, a subject, she's right in this room. What? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a, it's a big problem, but there, there are, you know, there's this sort of, um, lay belief that people who become bullies were bullied, right? So they were people who did have their self-esteem pounded down. That does not really um, show up consistently in the research, right? So some people who were bullied become bullies. Some people who were bullied actually become really, really nice people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they become really generous and brave people. Um, that said, I do think that there are, you know, there are situations that, that, that can cause some people to, um, I don't, you know, honestly, I gotta tell you, like I'm, I'm stretching here because it's, it's, I, I can't say for sure that the research shows this because what I see when we talk about fragile high self-esteem is not what you're talking about. It's not people who had good self-esteem and somehow that got pounded down. When you're on the go 24 seven, like me guys, finding ways to make life easier is so important for my health and sanity. <laughs> and that's exactly what my friends at Macy's do for me from working there as a teenager to now going to them for so many of my daily essentials. It's been my go to for so many years. And having everything in one place is such a time saver for me with being a first time mom. For a while now, as you know, I've had plenty of those and being able to rely on them for all the things has been amazing. Plus, having everything in one place has made being a new mom just a little bit easier for me. So I know we're all focusing on our families, our health, hopefully our jobs and everything in between. But it's time to make your life a little easier. And to help you out, I've curated all of my essentials from Macy's for you and the whole fam. All the details are in the show notes below, or you can just click the link in the description to get your hands on them too. I have some new picks on there. This little bomber jacket, this little black dress. You're gonna love it. I think fragile high self-esteem, you see um, very often in situations where 
Um, people just for whatever reason feel ego threatened. And, you know, that might be a personality variable. It might be, it might be about their attachment style. It might be about the context that they're in, but for whatever reason they feel threatened. And so rather than sort of, um, acknowledge that threat and, uh, and deal with it, they try to overwhelm it with this sort of false high confidence mm-hmm. or this overconfidence. And what happens is that that comes across not as confidence because it's not confidence, but as arrogance. And arrogance is a weapon. It gets confused all the time with confidence, but it's not confidence. True confidence does not require you to put up walls. When people are confident, they, they can, you know, they can accept critical feedback. They, they're not in a defensive posture. They're in an open, vulnerable posture. When people are arrogant, when they have that fragile high self-esteem that I talk about, then they are basically throwing grenades at other people, or they're putting up walls to prevent other people from challenging them. And the, the interesting thing is that arrogance will stop people from challenging you, but not because you've won them over. It's mm. because they don't like you. They want to get rid of you. So, you know, I often say um, presence is about, you know, first, as we talked about already, believing your story or buying what you're selling. And second, it's about having confidence without arrogance um, and being being open. When you are truly confident, your confidence is a gift to others. It's not it's not a threat. Arrogance is threatening. Confidence is is something that makes people feel comfortable. Wow. Well, because everybody always says that, you know, you're confident and that's what's threatening people. That's such an an overused, probably at this point, um, theory. Yeah, I think that's just not the case. I, I, I mean, OK, let me let me just say I've studied sexism for 20 years. So this gets co- a little complicated okay. when we when we get when we interact Sort of when we look at look at these variables and how they interact with with gender. Although I do feel like things are changing, I I know it, that seems like a strange thing to say right now mm-hmm. because we see some incredibly bad behavior right now as well. But I do think things are changing. The mistake though that women and men make is that when people are judging each other, when they're evaluating each other, they're evaluating each other on two key dimensions how warm or trustworthy is this person? So that's the first dimension. And then the second dimension is how confident, how strong is this person? Those two variables account for almost all of what we would call statistically the variance in our overall impression of other people. So, okay, so if you ask people, how warm is this person? How competent is this person? And then you just say, what's your overall impression of them from negative to positive? That third piece, almost all of that is accounted for by warmth and competence. You could, you could include a hundred other traits and they would not, not really be related to that overall impression. So when we're judging other people, those are the things we care about. But here's what's interesting. We care about them in that order. We first judge warmth. Because say you meet a stranger in the alley, Mm -hmm. you first want to know friend or foe, you know, what are their intentions toward me? Are they good or bad? That's answering the warmth and trustworthiness question. The second question we ask after we've assessed that is, are they capable of carrying out those intentions? So if they're, if we see them as not warm, 
and they're confident, that's super threatening, right? If we see them as warm and competent, then that's an ally that we're going to take in. The problem is that in work settings, we make the mistake of prioritizing showing our own competence and strength before showing our warmth. Oh, so yes. All the time. People want us to be seen as the smartest guy in the room. That's what happens. And this is, I used to do this, I used to teach um, second year MBA students a class called Power and Influence. And it was in the first semester after their summer internships. And they'd come back and you know, these are really smart, capable students, but a lot of them were shocked that they didn't get invited back to, to be hired by the company that they interned for at the end end of the summer, because they went in and they, they, you know, they said, I wanted to show them how smart I was. The problem is that they wanted to show them how smart they were. That's what they wanted to do. They didn't take the time to establish trust with these people. Mm -hmm. They, you know, when they were asked to socialize, they didn't socialize or when they needed help, they didn't ask for help. So no one got to know them. Instead, they just saw them as, you know, the, the, the person who um, was working really late um, and cared more about looking confident than, than, you know, managing or I shouldn't say managing, but sort of investing in relationships. So the funny thing is that, yeah, we want to see others as warm, but we want them to see us as confident. And we need to remember that trustworthiness comes first for everyone. Trust is the conduit of influence. You can have a million great ideas. You could be the smartest person in the room. It does not matter if people don't trust you. When they trust you, they open up and all of a sudden you have a medium through which your ideas can travel. So that's that's why confidence comes across as threatening. It comes across as threatening when we don't first establish trust. Mm-hmm. And and speak a little bit about the bullying because I'm so fascinated by that. So, um, so the you know, the... the, the the book that I'm working on, which is called Bullies, Bystanders, and Bravehearts, is really focused on um, uh, kind of the anatomy of a bullying. So how does this unfold? And what are the signs that we can look for as bystanders that tell us this is about to escalate into a really bad situation or a witch hunt, and we don't want that to happen? So I talk about the bullies in the beginning, but the, the, the point of the book is kind of, I think, surprising because I'm, I'm trying to get people to stop focusing on the bullies because there's such a small percentage of people mm-hmm. and such a small number of people who are actually bullies, yep. who actually take some um, pleasure in hurting other people or who feel so threatened that they have to destroy somebody else. The problem honestly is the bystanders. And that's most of us who are, you know, just standing there doing nothing thinking, Oh, you know, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Or, you know, they're feeling like I don't really know what to do, or maybe this is not as bad as it seems. And I want people to inoculate themselves against the bullies Bullies are using tactics that end up um, accessorizing people. So I call the people that are really the problem are the people that I call accessory bullies. So you've got principal bullies. Mm -hmm. Those are the really, really bad people. But then you've got the accessory bullies. Those are the ones who are doing things like retweeting nasty tweets or, you know, spreading stories that are not true Mm -hmm. or, you know, getting on board with the bully because they're doing a risk 
you know, assessment and they decide that it's safer to get on board with board with the bully yeah. uh, rather than do the right thing. So don't let the bullies accessorize you. You know, so how do you inoculate yourself against that? So the first step is what are the logical fallacies they use to get you to believe that this person's evil? You know, um, how can you figure out if the threat that they're citing is a real threat or what I call a decoy threat? Um, so how do you inoculate yourself is the first step. And the second step is how do you take small steps toward bravery? And let's just take social media as an example, because a lot of adult bullying is happening on social media. It's not the only place, mm -hmm. but it's, it's one place. One thing that people need to do is when they see bullying happen, they believe a lot of people, if you ask them, you know, can you change bullying online? They think, no, no, there's nothing you can do about it. That's just not true. What people need to do is support the target who's being bullied. They do not need to address the bully, but they do need to support the target. So write supportive words to the target. So for example, the other day, there was an author who I really respect who writes about mental illness very openly in a way that has saved people's lives. People bully him all the time. Um, he's very open about a suicide attempt that he made many years ago, about his own depression. People come in, oh, they emasculate him, it's awful. And sometimes it gets really bad. So when that happens, I will go online and say to him, dear, um, this guy's name is Matt Haig. I'm sure a lot of people have heard of him. He's amazing. I really value the work you do. Thank you for what you do. It saved so many lives. I don't address the bullies. I address him. And you're doing two things when you do that. Not only are you supporting that person who's being bullied, which helps. It's meaningful. I can speak from experience as a target of bullying. Mm -hmm. But you're also changing the norms. Bullies win because they are squeaky wheels. Yeah. They're a small number of people making a whole lot of noise. And that makes us think that the norm is to bully and our behavior is shaped by norms. So if we can tilt in the other direction so that the norm becomes generosity and kindness, then you will see bystanders stepping up. You'll see the norms shift. All right, friends, let's talk about something we all do. Snack. Trust me, I've definitely overindulged in the past, but as you know, I am focused on my health these days. And I think I found the healthier snack that you don't have to lose out on the flavor. And it's definitely become my go-to. It first came into the house because of Kevin. He was obsessed with wonderful pistachios. And then I got addicted. And now it's in my travel bag. I don't leave home without it. It's in our glove compartments because they don't melt. Right now, my favorite flavor is the sweet chili flavor. It feels like some of the naughtier kind of snacks I used to use where I used to lick my fingers after. Now I lick them and I feel safer. Um, plus, Wonderful Pistachios is one of the highest protein nuts. Each one ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. That's crazy, guys. So if you're looking for the perfect snack, trust me and head over to www.wonderfulpistachios.com to snag a bag of Wonderful Pistachios. You're going to love them. I remember my mom always struggling with her hair. It's frizzy Maria, my mom would say in her Greek accent. Tiehis, what do you have? I tried so hard to find her products. I wish I could share these products I'm using now with her because I know she would be so happy to finally have good hair days. 
I've always believed that hair is a woman's best accessory. And with Waze new anti-frizz cream, you can ensure that your hair always looks its best without the frizz stealing the spotlight. It's a lightweight cream that not only provides immediate frizz control, but also helps prevent heat damage. And get this, it lasts up to 72 hours. That's three whole days of frizz-free, gorgeous hair. Waze seriously has some of my favorite products for taming the frizz. Pro tip, one of my biggest discoveries is using the Way hair oil on the ends of my hair before I dry it. Let me tell you, it's a game changer. Once it's dry, my hair looks so smooth and polished. I don't even need to do anything else. It is incredible. I love it. Frizz free up your schedule with Way. Go to the Way. T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com and enter the promo code Heel Squad for 15% off any product. That's the way. T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com. Promo code Heel Squad. Trust me, you won't regret it. That's great advice, actually, because I think what you start is a ripple effect of the positive. So then other people who feel the same way as you will then feel more confident to step up and say something. Right. Because sometimes it takes that one person to come forward and say, you know what? No, I don't think that this is um, the case or whatever it is. So you're offering a couple of things you're offering. I mean, first of all, you're just showing them that, that maybe the, the, the bullying is not the norm, but you're also offering shelter or belonging. Mm -hmm. You're saying, Hey, you're, if you, if you say something nice, if you support this target, you're not alone. You can come with us. Bullies Bullies operate through the threat of social ostracism and people would rather starve to death than be socially ostracized because we are as humans wired to need to be part of a group, Mm -hmm. right? So the greatest threat is to be kicked out of the tribe. And that's what bullies do. They make people think they're going to be kicked out of the tribe. So you know what? Offer them another tribe. Guess what? They're the bad guys. We're the good guys. Come yeah. with us. It's like the the different lunch tables at the cafeteria. <laughs> it absolutely is, and you know, and kids are are developing all of these programs. I mean, what? I I I don't. I can't remember what this is called. But are you aware of the this app that a, a high school student developed, um, where it's she basically offers she creates um, a kind of map of the high school cafeteria and students can find people who will sit with them at lunch right so it's called like sit with me or something mm-hmm. yeah. and I want to get this right but it's it's that the whole idea is that if you feel isolated there are people at your school who are there for you and you can sit with them and I just think it's beautiful and so it's a beautiful way to support targets and also change norms it is sit with us. it's called sit with us yeah sit with us yeah well there's also um there's a park bench somewhere and the, there was a story about this park bench where if you sit there it's an indication oh, yeah. that you need a friend or you need you know some support and someone will come sit next to you all of these things are just such great ideas to kind of help people not feel alone and isolated and um, it's special. That's right. And we all feel really isolated right now. I mean, we, we all, I mean, I'm making the, the kind of stretch. I don't think it's a stretch, but I, I think it will, it will be a, a little bit surprising to people. I'm making the argument that we as a society have complex post-traumatic stress disorder. So basically, as a society, our collective behavior looks like a person with complex PTSD. And PTSD, complex PTSD is basically um, post-traumatic stress that's caused by a series of relational um, abuses, right? Whereas post-traumatic stress disorder is usually caused by one event, Complex PTSD is caused by, say, childhood abuse Mm. or repeated sexual assault. 
And the way what people do is, you know, they 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 self isolate, they stop helping each other, they they develop a sense of powerlessness, they stop investing in relationships, and I think that we as a society are acting like we have complex PTSD. Interesting. Well, there's definitely we do we are living in a takedown culture. Which For sure, is so unforgiving. It's a very difficult time. So I know that book is going to be very, very important. I hope so. um, you also talk about faking it till you make it, and there's a lot of research that supports um, faking it till you make it. So if you can explain that a little bit more in depth for people. Um, sure. Yeah. That'd be great. Um, yeah. So, okay. So it's interesting. I actually say fake it till you become it. And I, I say, don't fake it till you make it, fake it till you become it. And, and don't. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. I got that wrong. Actually. You know, that's okay. I, I read it's, it wrong off of here. And so th- thank, thank you for asking that question because I think it's a really important, um, it's, it's sort of a step beyond that. So faking it till you make it, I see as kind of, you know, putting on a mask until you get the position or whatever it is that you want to win, but then you still have that mask on. And now what do you do? Right. You've made it, but you haven't actually changed. You're still the same person who feels that they don't deserve to be there. Faking it to you become it is actually as faking it to you make it as far as I'm concerned is about tricking other people. It's about fooling somebody else. Faking it until you become it is about tricking yourself into being the best version of yourself, right? And it's, so it's really about um, tricking yourself into feeling more powerful, more deserving, which frees you up. It activates what we call the approach system. It allows you to think more creatively, more openly, to see the world as a place that's not filled with threats, but that's filled with opportunities. And when we do that, we step forward into the world, right? And we become we become more courageous. And when we're more courageous, the world opens up to us. And so then slowly, incrementally over time, you become that best version of yourself. So that's what I'm really talking about. When I say fake it till you become it, you're not focused on acquiring a particular thing or some, you know, really concrete goal. You're focused on slowly, incrementally becoming the best, strongest, boldest version of yourself. So do you have an example or two of how someone would do that process wise so that they can, you know, start the start it basically? I don't know. I mean, sure. Let me I mean, let me tell you, I'm going to tell you a story from I mean, I hear from so many people about how they use these ideas. And this one, I think, is is um, really timely. And also um, the woman who told me the story is very self-aware, so she can explain it in a way that is, is, I think, really helpful. But so a woman named Kristen came to me after a talk one time, and she said, I have to tell you this story. And she was, she had two friends with her, and I could tell that she was on the, on the verge of tears. And this happens sometimes. I feel like people have a story that they need to tell me, and it's kind of like receiving a gift from them. Um, but I can tell that it's a painful thing for them to share. So she shared this story about how she had started working. She had gotten divorced and was going through a rough time and trying to figure out what she wanted to do. And she started working in a restaurant as a server. And the her boss started sexually harassing her on a regular basis, calling her names, referring to her body parts, um, you know, just not treating her like a human. And she said she felt herself getting smaller and smaller and questioning herself. And she even became sort of afraid to tell her friends what was going on because she was she was embarrassed 
um, which is common. You know, people feel embarrassed sometimes when they're being harassed or abused. And so the way that she dealt with this, um, in her case, somebody did send her my TED talk and said, you need to watch this because she also is a big yoga practitioner. So she's very aware of kind of the body mind connection. First, she started to notice that when she was feeling um, really bad, she was holding herself in a more self-protective, smaller posture. She was closing up, but she was also closing up in, in other ways, right? She was sort of shutting her brain down. She was isolating herself from other people. She wasn't sharing things with other people. And so she first, she started by saying to herself, look, I'm feeling really bad. I think something bad is happening. I need some validation from my friends. So she, she went to dinner with her friends. She said she had been avoiding going out. She went to dinner with her friends and she told them what was happening. And they were incredibly supportive. And they said, that is what's happening to you is wrong. You have every right to be angry. This guy is wrong. You should leave this job. You have our full support, right? So she was, she, that was the beginning of opening up. But then she realized that she also had, had, um, had her power stolen by this guy, right? He had sort of taken her power from her and she needed to take it back. So she started to just practice sort of expanding um, and, you know, walking into work in the morning. She wasn't, she couldn't quit her job quite yet. Slowly, you know, she said she started to feel like she was taking her power back. She decided finally that she did have to quit, but that she did not want to just leave the job and, and walk away and not explain to this person what had happened. Now, let me just say, I am not saying that, that people who are sexually harassed are required in any way to confront their harasser. It, they're not obligated to do that. This is just what she wanted to do. She wanted to tell him why she was leaving, but she wanted to do it in a way that felt like her. So that morning she got dressed. She said she wore something that she felt really confident in. She listened to her favorite song. You know, she, she surrounded her things, herself with things that made her feel like herself. She walked into town and she said she felt herself getting bigger as she walked into town, feeling taller, feeling like her old self. She confronted her boss. She said, I'm leaving. And I think you know why I'm leaving. And he pretty quickly broke down. And she said she felt herself taking her power back. And she said, I felt this combination of confident and generous. So she said, I'm not trying to ruin your, your business. Um, I want you to be the best person you can be, but what you've done is wrong. And I know, you know, it's wrong. You have daughters and I know that you would never want anyone to treat your daughters the way that you've treated me. But it was the, it was the sort of expanding into her full self and knowing that she deserved to be there and to be saying the words that she said. And she said, it was, um, it was, it was not, she said, I almost felt like it wasn't me. It was a divine voice. Wow. And I said, it felt divine because it was exactly you. It was the best version of you. She left the job. She felt really, really satisfied with the way she had done it. She felt like she had taken herself back. So she had gotten small in a way because of what was happening to her. And she started to take 
up some more space. You know, she started to expand more and more by sharing things with her friends, but by allowing herself to think things that she had been afraid to think. And finally, by, you know, physically taking up more space and actually saying the words to this person that she wanted to say and taking her power back. That's so cool. As a first-time mom with a baby, I'm always on the go, whether it's running errands, getting my coffee, going to doctor's appointments, or just spending quality time with little Athena. And that's why I rely on wonderful pistachios to keep me fueled and ready for anything, no matter where I am. Kevin even keeps us bag stashed in the nursery. you know, for the nighttime hunger moments. Wonderful pistachios comes in a variety of flavors and sizes, making them the perfect snack to have literally any time, whether I'm enjoying them during a quick break in between taping this show or I'm on the go and it's in the diaper bag. I do carry it in my travel bag and they're in my car. At this point, when I'm leaving the house, I think keys, wallet, wonderful pistachios. (laughs) Bonus, wonderful pistachios is one of the highest protein nuts with six grams of protein in every one ounce serving. So on top of all that, they keep me feeling satisfied. I'm energized while I'm juggling all this crazy stuff in life. Next time you're looking for a convenient and guilt-free snack, head over to www.wonderfulpistachios.com and stock up on your favorite flavors today. Minus the sweet chili. I mean, not a lot of people, unless they start listening to your TED talk or, you know, reading your book or, or, going to be cognizant of the fact that just your physicality can make such a difference. It's so cool. A huge difference. Will you explain, um, or let's talk a little bit about the imposter syndrome and how we can manage that or get rid of it? Yeah. So it's funny. the, The person who first studied what we call imposter syndrome is named Pauline Clance. And, um, and she says, that if she could do it again, she would not call it imposter syndrome because syndrome implies that it's pathological, that it's rare. She would call it the imposter experience because what she learned after she started studying it, you know, in the decades that followed is that about 75 to 85% of people experience this, right? So it's it's actually incredibly common. Um, And so the imposter experience is feeling like you don't deserve to be in, you know, wherever you are, like say, feeling like you don't deserve the job that you have, or it's really common among college students where they feel like they were an admissions mistake. Hmm. And that at any moment, the admissions committee is going to come and say, we made a mistake, you're out. You know, we, we wanted the other Amy, not you. And so that's, it's that feeling of being a fraud and that you're going to be found out. And so what it causes people to do is to see the world as a place that's filled with threats, not opportunities. And so they don't take on risk. They won't put themselves out there. They, they shy away from situations where they could actually be sort of growing and making progress. So I think the, the, there are a couple things that I, that I, I think help people. One, one is to know that imposter, the imposter experience is not a women's problem. It was first believed to be a women's issue because women were more open about reporting it. Ah. So they were talking about it more openly. But Pauline, this the woman who started studying it in the early 70s, said that she quickly learned that when surveys were anonymous, men were reporting it at the same rate as women. Oh, wow. And that's been shown again and again. Men feel like imposters as often as women do. They just don't talk about it. Oh, wow. They don't talk about it to each other, which is in a way a burden. 
right? Because they're not able to talk about it. They're mm-hmm. not airing it out. So I think that women take it on as this like, well, we we feel like frauds, but apparently men don't feel like frauds. So maybe that means we are frauds. That's not true. Men feel like frauds too. <laughs> um, uh, so j- just to know that, that it's not it's not gender specific, but also just to know how common it is. It's incredibly common. And the thing is, sometimes we're going to feel like that at the beginning of a new challenge. And then we're going to learn how to cope with that challenge and we'll get over it. So just to not panic when you feel that way, to know that you, you can grow through that. You know, one of the people that I interviewed for the book is the incredibly successful writer, Neil Gaiman, um, who's, you know, everywhere. He's, you know, written so many bestsellers and now, you know, so many of his his books have been made into really successful series and films. And he's just this wonderful guy who's one of the few men who publicly talks about feeling like an imposter. And so I interviewed him for the book and he's, he's also been a really supportive friend and, um, you know, member of the community of supportive authors. And, and he said, the thing is, every time I take on a new project, I have that feeling of being an, an, an imposter, but now I know that I'm going to get over it. Hmm. Right. He said, you never, you never completely conquer every challenge in the universe. You just conquer the challenge that you're on you know? <laughs> and, and there's going to be another challenge. And for a little while you might feel like a fraud, but know that you're going to get past it. And so he says, you know, it's a game of whack-a-mole that you can win. <laughs> yeah, you've so got to push it's, through. It's to see it that. Right, exactly. Um, so don't panic. You're not alone. As a woman, you're not alone. As a human, you're not alone. And, and also know that what, what, what it's doing to you is making you feel disempowered. And when you feel disempowered, it is inhibiting you. So do the things that help you to feel more powerful again. And those are things like, how do you carry yourself? Do you carry yourself like someone who's feeling powerless or like someone who's feeling powerful, right? Expand, take up a little bit of space, um, speak more slowly, pause, I mean, there are all kinds of things that we can do to take up a bit, bit more space. And that sends the signal back to our minds that we actually are comfortable and safe and confident. I love that. I have to say you're so inspiring everything that you've gone through health wise as well. Um, and to be Thank where you. you're at is incredible. I have to ask, you know, when you look at the fact that you've earned your PhD from Princeton and um, you're teaching it. Harvard. And I mean, there's a lot of other Ivy League schools in there in between. Did you suffer from any of these that you can share with the audience? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I had horrible imposter syndrome um, for such a long time. Because first of all, I grew up in a farm town in the middle of Pennsylvania, you know, in Amish country, only a third of my high school class went to college. I was the only person to go to school out of state. Um, and I went to a state school. I paid my way through school. I worked as a roller skating waitress. Like I did not have a fancy pedigree. So from the beginning of college, I felt like an imposter. Mm. Um, then in the second year of college, I was in this horrific car accident, um, a single car accident. My friends who were in the car with me were not injured, but I was thrown out of the car. I had a very serious traumatic brain injury, ended up in the hospital in a head injury rehab unit you know, was, was withdrawn from school and told that I probably wouldn't finish college, but that I would be high functioning, which is, I know meant to be encouraging, but it's not. It's like, I wish they would banish that term high functioning. So, you know, I, I really had these major setbacks. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I, you know, for a while lost 30 IQ points, uh, which is a massive drop. You know, that's two standard deviations. It's, it's huge. And it took me four years to get back into college and be able to, to actually process information and finish. So I was graduating from college four years after my high school classmates, if that makes sense. So, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's because I, I kept dropping out because I, I tried to go back after the head injury and wasn't ready and couldn't, couldn't think clearly. So by the time I got to grad school, I really, really worked hard, but I did not put myself out there. I didn't take risks. You know, I didn't want to give, I didn't want to speak up in class and I really kept my head down. I ended up at Princeton and thought, I mean, can you imagine like speaking of, you know, feeling like I'm the fraud and I was the admissions mistake. I was sure that someone was going to say, um, we made a mistake. You have to go. And so I, again, I worked really hard and despite the evidence that I was doing well, you know, I still felt like I didn't deserve to be there. I wasn't even paying attention to the data that I was creating. Wow. So I continued to feel like an imposter and I had to give a talk at the end of my first year of grad school. And I was so nervous about giving a talk that I nearly quit. I was terrified of giving this talk. My advisor, I, you know, I called her, said, I'm going to quit. <laughs> she said, you're not going to quit. You're going to give the talk. And she said, you're going to keep on giving talks. You're going to give every talk that you're asked to give because slowly you'll find one day that you're not scared anymore, that you survived and you're okay. And that's really, so that was the faking it till you become it. You know, it was going, all right, I don't feel like I deserve to be here giving this talk, but I'm going to do it anyway. And eventually, I mean, now giving, giving talks is my favorite thing to do. There's nothing mm-hmm. that I love more than public speaking, which is amazing to me. I mean, I could, it's like shocking to, you know, people who went to grad school with me. I'm sure that I love doing this now and feel so comfortable, but that is, that's the, you know, tricking yourself into allowing yourself to take risks. And then eventually, you know, you've done it enough times that you're like, I guess I do deserve to be here. I guess I'm okay. That's great. Lastly, we always ask everyone, how are they getting better? So Amy, how are you getting better each day? And it can be anything that you're working on uh, within yourself, whether Mm -hmm. it's meditating or whatever it is that you're working on. Well, for me, it's, this is, maybe it can seem a little strange, but it's actually sort of working less. And I feel like I've been a workaholic since, since the head injury, you know, since I get, got back to school, mm-hmm. I just, I, I, I was so afraid to, to let up and stop working. And so what I'm doing is really getting back in touch with the things that I loved when I was younger. Um, and that's live music. And so, you know, I'm a deadhead. You might see my pendant <laughs> here, which is a steal your face. Uh, so I've gotten, like, I started following the dead again. You know, the dead is not like John Mayer's playing with them. It's the community is amazing. Now I've been writing about it. I wrote a salon article about my experience as a deadhead and how much it means to me. And I was just asked yesterday to teach a course at Berkeley college of music on sort of the Grateful Dead and entrepreneurship and innovation. And I'm actually thinking about doing that. So I'm, I'm going back to the things that I just love, that I enjoy, you know, and I'm doing them with my family. Um, I'm spending more time, so much more time with my, with my family than I was a few years ago. And wow, I'm so much happier than I've been in years just doing those things. 
That's amazing. Well, we talk about that all the time, you know, when you're faced and you know this better than most when you're faced with a life threatening situation or you're on your deathbed, you're not going to look back and say, wow, I'm so glad I went to that meeting. It's going to be like, I'm so glad that I pursued the things that just made me so happy. And I spent time with my family. And, you know, so it's, it's good that you're making that return to that. It is. It's so true. I know I heard that so often and I couldn't live it. And now I'm living it. And, um, you know, it's, man, it's just really, really happy now. That's amazing. Well, Amy, thank you so much. All right, guys. Uh, if you want to keep up with Amy Cuddy, just visit amycuddy.com. If you'd like to buy her latest book, it's called Presence. Uh, I highly recommend it. I loved it. Uh, you can click in the link, uh, click the link in the summary below, or you can go to her website. Like I said, amycuddy.com. In the meantime, follow us at Maria Menunos at Amy Cuddy. And remember, be nice people, make good choices, and be present. Hey, Heal Squad, we have been on quite the journey together, and we're hearing from so many of you just how much this show is helping you heal and get better, and it makes us feel so good. We love, love, love it, and we just ask that you don't keep it to yourself. Spread the message and share the show or your favorite episode with your friends. And if you want to help us even more, you can leave us a five-star rating and a comment on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and follow us on Instagram at Heal Squad. You can also DM us anytime because we love connecting with you. And finally, you can also join us on Patreon for our monthly live heal events with world-class healers and ad-free episodes exclusive only to Patreon and our Super Heal Squad for as little as $10 a month. So go to patreon.com backslash heel squad to join. Getting better isn't easy, friends, but as I say all the time, it's a whole lot easier if we can do it together. We love you all so much, and we love doing this thing called life with you.